is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, this is Peter, and this is our weekly Fuse and Focus show, and I'm joined with Alex. Hello. Who will be looking at uh, the rollouts of vaccination in an international context. That will be followed by myself looking at ab- uh, abortion legislation in Poland. I'm joined also with Serafina. who's looking at the Jamaican deportation flight and its ties to the Windrush scandal. We've also got Fiona looking at work and intellectual plagiarism in the case of Spotify intern and Florence Given. And finally, we'll be finishing with Jess, who's looking at Jesse's Little Mix exit or Jexit, as we've labelled it, thanks to Alex, uh, and its link to student uh, mental health. So we'll be starting with Alex and the rollout of vaccination. Yeah, so I think it's important this week to look at all things vaccine and how the world could potentially be saved very soon, um, hopefully by a multitude of vaccines uh, being developed all over the world. Uh, So I'd quickly start with how many vaccines will potentially be available in the UK next year by early spring. So uh, the main two ones are the Pfizer vaccine developed by BioNTech and also the Moderna vaccine, which should be available in spring. But there's also the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, um, co-developed now with Sputnik V from Russia. Uh, And there are two other Chinese vaccines in the final stages of testing right now. Um, So I also would like to highlight um, what makes the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine so special uh, with their 90% uh, efficacy. And it's mainly because they use mRNA technology, uh, which is a new technology that hasn't really been used in vaccines before now in humans. And instead of conventional vaccines, which use dead or weakened parts of the virus to trigger immune response, it actually uses part of the genetic code of the virus. Um, And this should hopefully mean that it's less likely to be overcome by new strains of a virus um, which is a hot topic right now uh, after Matt Hancock uh, announced in the House of Parliament in the Commons that um, there was a new strain in the southeast taking hold. Could this also be used for other viruses as well? Yeah, it could be used for influenza as uh, it develops very fast, it uh, mutates very fast, a bit like the coronavirus. So hopefully after the coronavirus has been cured, um, by these lovely vaccines or the lovely vaccines, then in the future we might also be able to get rid of influenza virus as well, uh, which sounds like a bit of a utopia, um, but utopias always go wrong, so I'm not hoping for that too much. Uh, just going back to the coronavirus vaccine, what's interesting as well, this new technology that uses mRNA technology is the fact that it doesn't use any chicken eggs in the development. So for any vegans out there listening, um, this vaccine should be good for you. It also means that the vaccine should be safer as there's less risk, risk of uh, contamination. Finally, going on to the rest of the world question, with all these vaccines being developed, is there um, a higher chance of the first world countries um, like Europe, like US, taking up all the vaccines? And the answer is probably yes. But with Pfizer hopefully making 1.5 billion vaccines, a year uh, or doses of the vaccine a year in the next couple of years, 
there should be a, a global rollout of the vaccine uh, to make sure that the mess created by first world countries doesn't affect third world countries for even longer. So really the problem with the vaccine is, is not about how good it is. It's more about how to get the people to take it and how to get them to trust. So what I think I need to mention while covering the vaccines is why I believe they're safe. Um, from my background of a biology undergraduate degree, uh, hopefully you might believe me, because I know there are a lot of friends of mine that do are a bit sceptical, and it's rightfully so. There, there are many rare cases, I say rare cases, there are many, um, that happen where there are severe adverse side effects from taking vaccines. But I, I just want to, to make it clear that the, the risk of getting adverse side effects from the COVID vaccine is uh, much less than the risk you pose by not getting the vaccine and then getting COVID yourself and possibly getting long-term uh, damage to your organs or even causing disruption in the rest of your community. Um, so I feel I should be mentioned. Uh, and I know I've said finally a lot, but I do want to make it clear that not all, after all the vaccine testing, there, there, are, many, there are many stages of the vaccine testing uh, that the vaccine has to go through before it's deemed safe for the public. Um, and this is just to highlight how safe the ones that have already made it this far, the ones like Pfizer's vaccine, the ones like Oxford's vaccine and Moderna's are more or less safe because in Brazil, I know there was a Chinese vaccine uh, being developed by Sinovac uh, that had adverse side effects. Um, it's alleged that one, uh, patient slash testee died because of the vaccine and because of that all further development of that vaccine was stopped so it's more or less just to highlight how well maybe not how safe they are in testing but how safe they are once they get out to the general public um so my first question to you guys would be are you going to get a vaccine i think yes definitely because it has been proved to be this thing that could save us all and return us back to normal life. Um, I think the only issue with it is that people are now relying on it to get them back to normal. I think we've seen possibly in London, having just been moved into a tier three area, that this news of the vaccine has made people a bit more lacklustre to follow the rules. And there is also the aspect of even if the government, even the, I bet they couldn't do a million a week, that seems little. But even if they did do a million people a week, we still would have a year to wait for everyone to be done. So it's not it's not going to save us all like now. We're not going to be able to be going to 2021 and it's all going to be fine. I think we need to find confidence in the vaccine and then let it take its course. Let's get everybody vaccinated, everybody ready. And then we can finally be like, we can stop. We can go back to normal once everyone's kind of accepted that and moved on together. Yeah, definitely. And uh, agreeing with Jess, I'll, I'll be like when when the time comes because by what i understand of the kind of vaccination rollout within the uk is it's going to be layered from like obviously pri like pri priority targets in terms of frontline workers um and also like obviously like that includes medical people as well and then obviously i think it's it's been done on age so obviously the most vulnerable and the eldest members of society so by the time that it kind of funnels down to our age range, it'll be quite a while 
But like Jess pointed out, also that um, the government set some pretty pretty impressive targets of, uh, I'm just reading here, it's aiming to inoculate tens of millions of people within months. Like that just sounds like a phenomenal number of people in a very short space of time. The military's been drafted in. So obviously like this, we've seen how unprecedented this year has been. And the fact that a vaccine has been developed so quickly is commendable. And I think this was a point we touched on in the show last week about how people are skeptical of it because of the speed and uh, related issues. So I think that getting kind of people to turn uh, towards the vaccination side and kind of away from conspiracy theory is something that we spoke about last week in terms of having like big public figures openly taking the vaccine. And I think with politicians doing that and other members, it can kind of ease away the pressures of kind of anti-vaxxer fears. I think the bigger problem for me is, and maybe we'll touch on, on this in, in the debate in a second, and you kind of alluded to it in your report, Alex, was um, kind of equitable distribution of, of the vaccination. Uh, so we've seen Western nations buying out large, large doses of vaccines. And how do we know, although that there are these multilateral um, agreements in terms of vaccination, in terms of health agreements, and we have uh, the World Health Organizations trying to ensure that there'll be equity. How do we know that this equity will be reached? Because at the end of the day, this vaccine, it's made, it can be made for profit and it can be turned for a thing for profit rather than of equitable distribution. So that's a bigger worry for me personally. You think about it in terms of populations and things. Um, yeah, I think there is going to be an issue with the vaccinating like the sort of the, I think the most efficient way to vaccinate the population of the world isn't currently the way that um, the vaccinations are being distributed amongst like the countries that can afford it. I think, you know, some of the, the countries with the, the most cases and the most kind of highly densely populated spaces aren't the ones that are currently able to buy up the vaccines. So I think we're definitely gonna see some kind of um, hierarchical kind of, based on like the country's wealth, um, you know, who kind of becomes corona free or, you know, has the, the vaccine working as well as it can be. Um, and so I think it I think that we need to look at the fact that I don't know I guess personally I think it should be done in a more utilitarian way like you know by giving the vaccine to you know this population or this country like how are we going to get as many people most efficiently vaccinated as possible but I just don't think that's going to work in terms of the market um you know grow capitalism as per usual um but I just I'm pretty impressed to be quite honest with the science behind it you know reading up about the science behind the obviously I don't come from a biology background um like you do Alex so um I wasn't really aware that all of these kind of developments were taking place so I'm pretty impressed actually that they've managed to get it um so quickly rolled out and in such huge um numbers as well and also the chicken egg thing I didn't know that that's pretty cool the fact that we've come this far in, in kind of medical research I think is, is pretty cool I think it's just as you said a question of getting it rolled out to the right people in the most efficient way which I'm skeptical about. Yeah um, so just touching on it being fast this new vaccine that's this new technology that's being used is much faster than using a chicken egg because obviously using a chicken egg takes time as you're relying on biological processes whereas just producing a short a short chemical basically uh, can be produced in a matter of days and weeks uh, rather than months. So I think that's also quite exciting. Um, just going on to my next question, um, it's more to do with the recent news over uh, UK medical journals 
not wanting this Christmas freedom. And I, I was just wondering whether you believe that this Christmas freedom is an indication or people wanting the five days of freedom is an indication of, uh, you know, COVID fatigue and whether you guys think that the Christmas celebrations are necessary and would you rather get uh, rid of, get out of uh, COVID purgatory faster or eat turkey with free households over Christmas? Tough one, isn't it? I think the whole country is split with it, really. I think um, especially with a vaccine coming around the corner, it's tough to know whether that risk is really worth taking with the sacrificing lives so that you can have a few more days together for Christmas is worth that. Um, I know personally with my family, it's a big decision. I think everyone's got the same thing with elderly relatives, whether it's worth making that risk. And I think it sort of goes back to um, it's interesting from a young people's and students perspective especially with the vaccine coming out now and it being rolled out to different age groups, how, um, so I think there's definitely a tendency in, among students to believe that it's not really our problem and it's sort of distancing age groups a lot more. But it's an interesting time of year for everything to come together and realise how sort of codependent we are and how much it actually does affect older members of our family and like in turn us. I think it's interesting when you have London, who they were very reluctant to put into tier three. Now going into that, you know, think of the businesses who were planning to be open, the hospitality industry um, for Christmas. And I think now they're being told maybe they can't be open, they can't serve Christmas dinner, they can't do everything. That's a huge effect on business, which has already been drastically affected by the pandemic already. And personally, I would much prefer to not have Christmas and not relax the rules and then have a bank holiday, say, put in March or something, where they can say, look, go and see your family, go and celebrate. Maybe it's not Christmas, because why is Christmas being singled out when we've had Hanukkah, Eid, so many different other religious festivals that have just been passed over. I think lockdown went into place just before one religious festival. And I just think it doesn't represent the diversity of the country right now. And it feels almost too privileged to be like, oh, have Christmas, go and see your family, you know, oh, the, the cases might rise, but this is for you. When even the health professional are saying, we think this is dangerous. It's just, it's, it resonates with what happened in lockdown one, where the government just didn't really listen to the health advice. They just were like, no, we think this is better for the economy. And I, yeah, I'm, I find that really frustrating when listening to it and hearing it on the news. I was just going to quickly say a good point of comparison to make in relation to Jess's point is what Germany's just done in terms of announcing a lockdown over the entirety of Christmas. And if we're talking about Christmas as a Christian celebration, a Christian tradition, which let's be honest, in the UK, it's not really tied to the actual religious value. Like it's been overly commercialized. So kind of the government trying to play on some rhetoric of like Christmas being this special time, like it's, it's overkill where Germany, which is quite a Christian nation, uh, has has said that they're going into complete lockdown over the entirety of Christmas and they're they're tackling it, rolling out vaccination, but also implementing lockdown to basically limit cases in the future. Whereas if we kind of sacrificed that over Christmas and we were more open, like even if it was for five days, like Alex said, like the, the purgatory of being in this kind of state would just go on for longer and the issues would be exasperated. So I definitely think that people can can spend Christmas with their tightest like family unit in terms of going home and like beyond that I think that it's just in terms of the circumstances and looking at how other nations are doing it we shouldn't like get too bold and brazen. Yeah I agree I think I think it 
this Christmas is probably a small price to pay for the fact that so many lives could be saved by just staying in these nuclear bubbles. And um, as Jess was saying, I definitely think if, you know, people of other religions have been doing this, you know, since Eid back in the summer, um, I think that people just need to kind of look at the bigger picture and, you know, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it's that much of a sacrifice to have to have like a Christmas dinner over Zoom than it is for, you know, possibly grandparents to be exposed to the virus. You know, in my family, I know we normally do some quite um, like a big thing with like fireworks and stuff for Diwali. You know, that just ended up being like all of us on a Zoom call. Like it, it just it has to be like that because, you know, that's just the, the price we have to pay because we are in a national pandemic, a global pandemic. Um, and I just think, I do agree with you, Peter. I think they are kind of um, overhyping the family and religious aspect of it when really, I think, to be really cynical, I think the biggest kind of aspect of Christmas they're worried about is the economic side. Um, because if there's no people going out and buying at Christmas, that is a lot of money lost for the economy. But I just think in terms of lives, it just needs to be sacrificed this year. Yeah, it's almost like um, the government have forgotten what the post office is and does. You know, you can send presents by post and you don't have to give them in person. So hopefully, maybe, um, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few days, whether the decision will be reversed, but perhaps it might be a good idea. Um, and hopefully in the future of all these vaccines, we may one day see each other uh, and be all happy. So in theme with Fuse FM's exploration of global protests, this week's focus turns to the Polish Strajkobiet, commonly referred to in English as the Women's Strike. As Poland attempts to pass new near-total ban on abortions, the country has experienced its biggest protests in four decades, with Polish women and men challenging church as well as state. The strike is an ongoing pro uh, protest which begun on the 22nd of, of October in Poland. It pits two broad factions involved in civil conflict. On the one side, certain Polish institutions, such as the Constitutional Tribunal, a subsumed political judiciary element, the Episcopal Conference of Poland, the central organ of the Catholic Church in Poland, uh, are united along with Polish right-wing media parties, such as the Governing Law and Order Party, along with anti-abortion activists and right-wing media. Pitted against these elements uh, is the feminist All Poland's Women's Strike and it's supporting left to centre left leading parties, activist organisations and media. This is a divisive issue in Polish politics with activists declaring war after a court decided to restrict abortion in cases of fetal abnormalities. The ruling by Poland's constitutional tri tribunal imposes a near total ban on abortion. Poland has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in Europe, so when Polish courts decided to, to restrict abortion even further, mass protests erupted, the largest, uh, the largest the country has seen since the mass social action clamouring for the fall of communism in 1989. The issue is deeply political and encompasses issues regarding the rule of law, with long-term anger mounting in this crisis over the interference of the Roman Catholic Church in public matters and people's opposition to the domination of all three branches of government by the right-wing law and order party. The rule of law issue within EU politics has been escalating of late, with nations such as Poland and Hungary being criticised by other EU members as not adhering to the rule of law, with Polish and Hungarian governments influencing judiciary decisions and appointments, thwarting journalists and using the state apparatus to coerce opposition. Whilst the debate on EU rule of law has been temporarily adapted 
adapted with Poland and Hungary reaching compromise on the union's budget payments, which sought to introduce clauses for payments guaranteed only to nations which fit a rule of law quota as defined by the EU, being pushed back to a later date. Yet the protest in Poland, sparked by the Constitutional Tribunal abortion decision, have further exasperated issues within Poland regarding the subversion of the judiciary and trampling of the rule of law. The Constitutional Tribunal, which voted in favour of tighter abortion restrictions, primarily consists of judges appointed by the ruling Law and Justice Party, um, which embraces a blend of national conservatism, right-wing populism and Catholic conservatism, proving to be a lethal concoction for female rights activists and women's reproductive rights. In comparison, politicians in equally Catholic conservative Argentina have recently voted yes to a bill which brings the country one step closer to legalizing action, a change long sought by women's rights activists. Yet the vote was tied with the parliament's lower house voting in favor of the proposed law 131 to 117 votes. The fight over women's rep reproductive rights is a global issue with many countries still imposing draconian abortion legislation, which to various extent criminalizes abortions not only in Poland, but as seen recently in the cases of Argentina, Northern Ireland in its 2019 repeal, and the Irish Republic in its 2018 re repeal, abortions have been severely criminalized in many nations. The matter of fact is Poland leads Europe, bar some minor nations such as Andorra, San Marino and Monaco, in holding the most restrictive abortion legislation. This makes the conduct of abortions in Poland a very dangerous enterprise, both politically and in terms of women's health. Many women are forced to travel abroad and in secrecy to have abortions with rights at home restricted. Surveys show that few polls support tighter abortion restrictions. The majority of the population do not see it as such a divisive issue, bar certain rural and ultra conservative elements of society. This brings us back to the broader political issue of the Polish governing party, which uses ultra conservative and nationalistic rhetoric in attempting of subsuming a divided nation under its values as a means of control and coercion. Whilst the demonstrations have exposed underlying anger at political and religious interference in politics. So my question is, what can Polish women, but also women more broadly around the world do in the face of restrictive government policy, which look to politicize the female body? Um, I think for me, the thing that annoys me most about laws being passed like this is that um, the more conservative governments that pass these laws want to control these women's kind of autonomy over their own body. And which personally, I don't think the state really should have that much control over an individual's body. Um, but also the thing that really, really frustrates me is that they want to ban abortion. but They don't want to put any of the social policy in place, which would... Uh, kind of make the world a nicer place for those babies that are born um, who would otherwise have been aborted. So you see in, in countries that have banned abortion, 20 years later, rates of crime have skyrocketed. There's so many more children in foster homes um, who don't get fostered because there's not enough people to, to adopt them. Um, you know, there's like so many more people dying and getting ill from backstreet abortions. It's just not a good thing. Like if, even if you're going at it from like which sounds kind of really weird and dehumanizing but to look at it from an economic perspective it's not worth it um and you know these these conservative governments that are more likely to, to want to restrict abortion rights are also the ones that aren't going to put the more liberal kind of people focused social policy in place so they're putting two kind of opposing uh, ideas in place and they aren't 
kind of negating the effects of what they're doing by banning abortion in any way shape or form so you just end up with a society that just isn't like it's not it's not better for society in any way it's just people get blinded by the fact that it's this possible child and I think in terms of government you need to do what's best for the population and not for what you you as an individual believe because of your religion um and again this is my personal opinion but I just don't think that religion and state should be as closely linked as they are um and it just every time something like this happens to do with women's reproductive rights it just hurts me inside um <laughs> and it just it's so immensely disappointing for me I mean I can't disagree with anything you've said I think you've summed it up perfectly um and it is fantastic to see so many people are protesting this and coming out and speaking against it um and I do think it's interesting that it seems to have been seems to have come with a more like a uh, general message I think one of the things that the uh group was calling for as you just touched on was a separation of um church and state so it does seem like it is becoming or growing into like a wider political movement as well which is great to see and also, as you touched on with Argentina, it's interesting seeing the parallels between these two countries that we've spoken about with like hugely Catholic values um, and how in Argentina it seems to be um, going the other way, which is also great to hear there. So there is some hope, but hopefully these protests can work and come through. Just going on the point of Argentina, I know, recent, well, for many years, actually, there's been huge campaigns across the whole country where people's daughters, mums and grandmas were all protesting um, for the rights of, for abortion, mainly due to, because of these backstreet abortions that Serafina mentioned, often that without legal abortion, many of these women die or get severely injured from the backstreet abortions. And actually, if they were medicalised, as Serafina already mentioned, that it would have a less detrimental effect on the economy. Um, so it's really good to see that it's passed the lower house in Argentina uh, and hopefully it gets past um, the Catholic majority um, that exists in Argentina. Um, on the case of Poland, it's, it's disappointing, but at least the voice is being heard and it's global news, which means that the people protesting are doing the right thing and the message is getting heard and maybe the EU might put some pressure on it. I don't think that's usually what the EU does, but potentially this could be a move for the future for the EU. I know that many of the women in the protests were carrying EU flags and rainbow flags because they wanted this involvement. They wanted someone else to kind of support their rights. And I know that there's a charity and like other NGOs, like one's called the Abortion Dream Team, and they help fund women to go abroad to like Germany, Netherlands and Britain to have these abortions and they've helped over like 250 in the last like couple of years maybe and I just think that's so it's just horrible because as I'm saying the autonomy and the the right to your own body is just completely taken away and wait for a judgment because if he did the abortion then he's committing a crime but then if it's ruled to be okay or deemed okay because of a medical reason then it's all right the woman has no say in that she's just waiting to see what happens and it could become too late at that point or you know there's so many difficulties that could be happening in a pregnancy and I know we've touched on the economic side of this and like the political religion side but I just think the right of that woman that and the fear of that woman if they weren't ready for a pregnant for, to have a child it's it's horrible thought to be in that situation where you literally have no say in what happens in your life you are completely out of that uh, 
decision. I think tying some of these points together and some of the things that have been raised, it's interesting um, when we're talking about this um, church state divide and how they shouldn't be separated. Because if we look at kind of like the cultural influence of religion, say if we're comparing it to the Northern Irish case, which repealed uh, the criminalization of abortion only last year, but still very positive step in actually repealing its criminalization. We see Northern Ireland as still a very sectarian country where like being the difference between being Catholic and Protestant runs so divisively in the country and religion is so culturally embedded in the country. So comparing that to the Polish case where Catholicism is also deeply embedded in the country, but we have the difference here where um, rather than decriminalizing, we see the tightening of abortion rights. For me, I think, and it, for Fiona highlighted it and also others, uh, it's this problem of the, politi the politicization of the issue. And I think the fact that people are coming out on the streets and making this into a political problem is really good because it's about addressing, and I think what my story was trying to get at is this rule of law problem that both Poland and Hungary are experiencing right now. Uh, in relation to other EU member states and how the EU is trying to curb this. And unfortunately, Alex, I don't have much faith in the EU being able to kind of negotiate these processes with countries like Poland because they've shown an absolute weakness and not, not reluctance, but yeah, just weakness in dealing with Poland and Hungary on rule of law in the past. So I think this is an issue which needs to be addressed politically. Um, and the, the solutions for that may, may take years to happen in Poland which is quite unfortunate, obviously, for women's rights. I feel like the Pope needs to say something. Sorry. Um, <laughs> just because, you know, he's been quite progressive in terms of, like, LGBT plus rights. Um, you know, I think he's blessed a couple of same-sex couples or something. Um, and I don't know I don't know how long it's going to take for the Catholic Church as an institution to kind of accept abortion, but I feel like it it almost needs to happen at this point because it's if it's a, if it's a problem that's occurring in so many different Catholic uh, countries... It's obviously something to do with the the kind of the um, what's the word the kind of the tenets of the religion itself. So if the Pope said something, maybe maybe that would help. But again, don't know how progressive the church is at the moment with with abortion. Well, he is Argentinian as well, isn't he, the Pope? Um, but I think it's also important to look at it in the current context as well of coronavirus and the huge economic strain that so many countries are under at the moment and the widespread poverty which is spreading across so many countries and I think it is typical and we do know that this kind of these um like backstreet illegal abortions tend to go hand in hand with like rising poverty uh, and poorer women and it tends to be something that often they don't have a decision in they just can't like women cannot afford to have a child and that's where you get these dangerous abortions from and women dying and I it's like Serafina said, both economically and also just morally, it's just not, it doesn't add up. I think bringing in that legality, I think they've been slated for doing these protests during a pandemic as well. Like it's not given them the best press because anyone that's done a protest has always been the comment, well, why are you doing it now? Because you're just gonna increase cases, you're gonna increase people suffering from this virus. And I think in Poland's case, I think this issue is more important to them to get res resolved. Um, I think you see the passion of these women who are probably going through a lot more pain having these children or having these backstreet abortions than they would having this virus. And I think that's really quite significant to look at when we're looking at these protests in a specific context. Yeah, and just to raise the point, imagine if one of these uh, potential mothers lost their job and now because of the new abortion laws, 
they would have no money to support a child, but they'd also have to bring a ch up a child in severe poverty. Uh, it, it raises a lot of ethical questions whether you should bring up a child if you can't afford it, um, which I do not want to get into because it's a very messy subject. Um, but I, I do think it is more important to protest um, your human rights um, sometimes and break the rules where necessary. Yeah, just 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 tying together the conversation and finishing on that point, I very I very much agree with that sentiment um, that you just kind of expressed at the end there, Alex. I think if it is necessary and if something as important as your rights over your body, over your own reproductive system are being challenged, going out onto the streets to protest that even in the time of COVID, I think it's it's more important to do than to consider the COVID implications just because the infringement of human rights is so severe. And it's like, if you let this, if you let this step and uh, step occur and don't do anything about it, then what may the state do to you next? It's important for people to have their voices heard. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the Windrush scandal and its kind of um, relation to the deportation flights that occurred at the beginning of December. So the story in the news this week is that the government is giving more money to the victims of the Windrush scandal. Scandal, sorry. Um, so previously, the minimum payment that victims were going to get was two hundred and fifty pounds, um, but that minimum has now been raised to ten thousand uh, pounds. Um, similarly, the previous maximum was £10,000 and that's now kind of almost unlimited. So people are getting around £100,000, sometimes more, depending on how much damage they've they've gone through because of uh, the scandal. So the Windrush scandal itself, in case anyone's missed it, was in 2018, uh, UK citizens who kind of originated from the Caribbean um, were kind of um, affected by some new immigration policies which were brought in by the Home Office under the Home Secretary, who at the time was Theresa May. So this new policy demanded that they show documentation that they didn't have because back in, um, oh, when was it, like 1950s? Don't on that, I should know that, but um, they were given indefinite leave to remain in the UK. And so a lot of the children that came along with the people of the Windrush generation didn't have this paperwork because they're obviously kids. They came on their parents' passports. So they didn't have this documentation that they could then present to the Home Office. And so loads of them, were threatened with deportation, loss of citizenship, they lost homes, jobs, denied access to healthcare and benefits, and it just massively screwed over a whole, like I think there's 100, sorry, 500,000 people living in the UK who are members of the, the Windrush generation. Um, so the government, once this scandal broke in 2018, set up the Windrush Compensation Scheme, which is what's now being uh, giving out the payments um, as compensation. So that's kind of good news uh, that's happened this week, but that comes after at the beginning of December, there's, the scandal was kind of renewed. So there's a deportation flight heading to Jamaica. Originally, there was going to be 50 people on this flight, um, but there's been a huge campaign against it. We've had 82 black public figures. Um, so amongst them, we have Bernadine Evaristo, um, who wrote Girl, Woman, Other, We've got Naomi Campbell, the supermodel, and the historian David Olutoga. Then we've got several uh, NGOs, dozens of lawyers, uh, 60 MPs and peers, um, and a huge petition, all signing letters. The petition got over 180,000 signatures. So huge, huge outrage against this flight, basically. And they kind of renewed the legal challenge against it, looked at all of the people that were being um, deported and kind of uh, it was a legal challenge against a lot of them, basically. And the number of people who are actually going to be deported in that flight was reduced to 13. Um, and a lot of the people that they kind of, 
uh, took off this flight were actually found to be possibly have been victims of modern slavery and they were just going to deport them, which is kind of mad in my opinion. Um, but the main issue is that the 13 people who were actually deported, so the flight has left now, it's gone, it's back to Jamaica, these 13 people are out of the country, unfortunately, but they are branded serious foreign criminals. So the spokesperson for the Home Office uh, said this, we make no apology for seeking to remove dangerous foreign criminals to keep the public safe. The people being detained for this flight include convicted murderers and rapists. And on the Home Office's statement on the website, um, they say that amongst the people that were deported, amongst those 13, they'd committed offences such as murder, attempted murder, rape, child sexual offences, dealing class A drugs and violent crime. Um, and in terms of the legality of it, they were deported under the UK Borders Act 2007, which says that the Home Secretary is required to deport any foreign national, so i.e. a non-British citizen, um, who has received a custodial sentence of at least 12 months. Um, and then under the Immigration Act 1971, uh, both convicted of serious crimes or who are persistent offenders may be deported where it's conducive to the public good. Um, so technically everybody who was deported kind of in theory poses a threat to British society. Um, everyone on the flight had been checked by the Windrush tax, task force and wasn't eligible for that. So in theory, they weren't really connected to Windrush but may have been descendants of the people that came over. Um, it's so the issue at hand here is that they are in theory criminals, but there's 31 children of the, the people that went on the, the, the flight. So they've got 31 children between them. Many of them were the primary caregivers for these children. Um, and actually one of them who his partner spoke to the Metro and said that he, yes, had received a prison sentence for attempt to supply Pass A drugs, but he'd done his prison sentence. Um, he, you know, is reintegrated back into society. He was a great father to his kids. Um, you know, the, the kind of quite humanising stories. So my question to you guys is that, what what do you think about this? Like, is is the impetus to remove criminals from the country? Does that outweigh the fact that, you know, there's kids who are losing their fathers now? Um, does it outweigh the fact that, you know, these people have possibly done their sentences, they've served their time um, and are being reintegrated um, just because they aren't? technically citizens. I think there's a huge moral ethical question mark over this whether they're criminals or not of the fact that most of them have been here since their childhood. They are products of British education and they've grown up under our governments and in our country. Deporting them to other countries I think it's like I say ethically incredibly questionable and sort of harks back to like you know, hundreds of years ago with Britain's history of deporting criminals. I think it's, I, I find it unbelievable that they're actually doing it, to be honest. Yeah, because a lot of them don't have any links to Jamaica. You know, they've been in the UK so long enough that they don't have any family, they don't have any kind of job prospects. They've not grown up there. They don't know anything about like Jamaican culture or anything. They are, in theory, in everything but like having a passport, British citizens. I think a huge ethical question mark should be put over any policy decisions or comments that Pretty Patel has made over the last few months and like just in general in the years like but, but like be beyond this in terms of deportation topic um there, there was propositions that was leaked from uh, one of her cabinet meetings where apparently Pretty Patel proposed that people could be deported to the most remote island in the world which is a tiny British possession I think it's 
it's it's either on, on the Atlantic or the Pacific. I need to I can't remember exactly where this island was, but but it was the, the most remote island, like furthest from land. And she proposed that people could be moved there as this British overseas possession. But just going back to the um, the deportation case, like even if these people that are being deported and the arguments being made, oh, but they're criminals, they don't belong here. But what's insidious to me is the fact that there's this connection that's been made between criminality and race in a process that could be uh, explained as an othering. So you have these people that are in every way, they're British, they grew up here, apart from, uh, okay, they might have parents from another country, but they grew up here their whole lives, they were British. And the, the fact that they may not be citizens based on either the fact that their parents never applied for passports. But the thing is, the whole citizenship thing is tied up with the Windrush scandal, if we're talking about Caribbean immigration, because these people were invited as members of the British Commonwealth. And then, so therefore, they didn't need any papers. They didn't need legislation to come to the country because they were members of the Commonwealth. It was only after where the, the government was facing mass immigration where these problems started erupting. But that, that's a separate point. Going back to the original point I was making is now these people that in everything but passport are British, they're being treated as, even if they may be criminals, and I'm not excusing criminal activity that uh, has been conducted by these people that are deported, but what is insidious is the fact that their race is being tied with this concept of criminality, which just like once again highlights how much of an insidious policy Pretty Patel looks to kind of maintain within the country. And it all relates to this kind of taking back our borders, national sovereignty, not sovereignty, national control, tight immigration. Like it's all about this rhetoric that the government's trying to maintain. And it's just, it's just not good. It doesn't look good. I totally agree with Peter about like how like the sovereignty and the criminality and race all links together because what if there hadn't have been a petition that got that successful? What if there hadn't have been this massive movement from NGOs, lawyers, and then the power of people who are really concerned about this issue? Because there could have been people deported who weren't criminals, who had made their life. Be, I, I'm pretty sure there were some like nurses who were part of the women's gang who were potentially on this uh, deportation like register list. Uh, people who had done a lot for this country, if you wanted to do it in terms of like patriotism. Um, and I just... It's an issue that really gets to me and angers me because it's you have no longer a right to your own lifestyle and no longer right to a place where you probably have, you would say you love where you live, you feel at home where you live and have the, the concept of home just completely stripped away from you, taken away from you and being told, no, your home is here because that's where your parents came from. It, just the the right to your own life just taken, taken away like that, I just find abhorrent. I think my my big question for this whole story is how do these people get so far in life without having documentation? Um, and surely this is due to a lack of infrastructure from the British government. Because you shouldn't be able to buy a house or get jobs without proper identification that you're a British citizen. I thought that was I thought that was like necessary every time you get a job or buy something new, big, like a flat or accommodation. I didn't know you could get that far, reach adulthood, have children, send them to school, and then be deported because you don't have the documentation. I just find the, the whole situation crazy. I think they've got the paperwork to technically live here. They're just not citizens yet. Um, I think so they just don't like, they don't like pass citizenship tests. Um, but I just think like, I don't wanna, obviously don't want to condone such horrible criminal behavior but I just think that um you know British citizens do 
the same things. You know, there are British people locked up, incarcerated for rape, for murder, for dealing class A drugs. And you don't send them to different countries. You know, this isn't the 1800s. We don't send people to Australia anymore for being criminals. You know, you just lock them up, you incarcerate them. And, you know, no matter what your views on the uh, carceral system are, um, what I don't really... I think there's just a racialized aspect there that they're treated differently because of their race. Um, you know, they they've lived here for long enough to, to really, you know, be almost British. Um, so I just think that there's such a kind of institutionalized racism there as well. Um, I mean, you know, that's not even taking into account the fact that um, black people are statistically more likely to um, like be imprisoned just because of the way our system works you know they're set up from from birth to to be criminalized um and there's way larger proportions of black people in prisons than there are in the general population you know all of those issues it's just there's just it's two completely different standards for two different groups of people and the racism institutionalized is just so evident to me and it's it's disgusting to be quite honest being a bit cynical do you think that this whole scandal of deportation is just to do with the prison crisis, uh, especially with the criminals. Do you think it's just because they don't want to pay for people to live in prisons in the UK and it's much easier just to deport them to a foreign land where they're no longer their problem? Maybe. I mean, it, it is only 13 people, so I don't know. And I think, um, for example, the, the, the example I gave, the guy had already done his time in prison, so he wouldn't necessarily have gone back in. Um, I think it's just, um, as somebody mentioned before, the 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 equation of a criminality with race that's more of the issue. I think one, yeah, another important thing to flag up, um, which going back to Serafina's point of like our the the way we've treated criminals historically is, um, I've seen a few things recently about the poor conditions in the immigration detention centres. Um, I think there's been a lot. So I think, especially at the moment, there's um, coronavirus is like very widespread among them and they're not particularly looking after um, the people in the centers very well. I think there was one case of a man who um, who had attempted suicide just before um, he was due to go on a flight to be deported. Um, and I believe he spent a couple of nights in hospital and they put him straight back into the detention center to then take this flight in a couple of days. I think it's an important thing to, I think there's a few people that have referred to it as Dickensian, which is completely understandable. Um, and I think it's important things to flag up to make sure people are aware and we don't overlook this sort of returning to our past. And I think it does just show that we still have a lot of work to do in this country regarding race. Um, and yeah, it, it, the similarities between now and kind of 100 years ago are scary, I think. Um, but to focus on the positives, you know, at least 37, if I've done my math right, 37 of those original 50 people weren't deported and are allowed to stay in this country. So at least, you know, you can have a little bit of faith in the justice system. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so Spotify's morals have been under fire in the last few weeks due to their wrapped concept. Um, Spotify have been running this concept, which gives each listener a personal analysis uh, of what they've listened to throughout the year since 2016. However, in 2019, the year when Jewel Ham undertook her internship with the company, it was only available to access and send as an email link. In early December, Jewel Ham tweeted, I really invented the Spotify rap story concept as an intern project in 2019, and they haven't looked back since. Ham claims to have contributed the ideas of expanding the concept and making it more interactive. 
She also tweeted an image summarizing her internship project, which states her idea to expand the campaign as Gen Z requires a bit more attention. We like to touch and feel to scroll and to post. We no longer, we no longer stop at a mere screenshot. Hashtag wrapped in is hashtagable, repostable and an altogether shareable experience. She also highlights within this the use and the importance of stories and how that would play in its success. Despite this, Spotify told Refinery29 that hundreds of employees have contributed ideas and concepts that have made the experience what it is today. Although Jewel Ham says that she worked independently from start to finish without supervision, and her only target from the company being to make Wrapped appeal better to Gen Z, Spotify do legally own all her work and the work of all their interns. Ham's not heard from Spotify since, but did receive a stipend during her internship. The rap story format has really taken off in the last couple of years. Um, and last year, Spotify told Forbes in the first week that rap was bought out, more than 60 million users engaged with the in-app story experience. It's been a hugely popular feature for Spotify and something which has really set it apart from other music streaming apps. Um, so what do you think about this? Do we think that uh, Jewel Ham should be given more credit for this idea? Yeah, I think the rap idea is amazing. I think it, it brings everyone together and you do have people who are like, um, no one's interested in what you listen to like you don't need to share it but I personally find it really fascinating and it is so interactive and it can be really embarrassing some years if you maybe pandemic listening to albums you may not want to share with your friends but I think on a whole it's especially this year it's been really fun to see what people are listening to something to look forward to and certainly as an intern um this person should be given credit because that person is probably not on the same salary as somebody else working in the Spotify company that is an amazing like thing to have created and she should definitely get credit for it because it's what people use spotify for sometimes you know, you're constantly like oh is that going to come from my rap oh what is my favorite top song um yeah i think it's definitely should be given credit for that i think this relates to a broader discussion that can be heard about how interns especially young interns people our age, um, especially people I know who finished uh, and graduated from university this year and are looking for jobs can so often just be taken for granted and also taken advantage of, uh, whether that be paid nothing at all, paid drastically less, or in the, uh, in the, um, the story that Fiona, you've introduced of Spotify wrapped uh, with like any bonuses not being paid or any like even um, kind of What's the word I'm looking for? Like she hasn't gained like any recognition for it, even like let alone financial payment. Uh, I think it just highlights how young people going into like these big, um, these big industries can very easily be taken for granted. And it takes a while for them to kind of get on their feet and kind of like make moves within like whatever, whatever the, the job, whatever the industry is. And I think it's a problem that needs to be addressed because a lot of young people can feel disillusioned by such things and can be driven away from kind of really getting like the best out of their own creativity. So I think it's definitely something that needs to be considered going forward. I'm going to be a bit controversial. I disagree. Um, I think you're right, Peter, that intellectual property theft obviously is a huge problem and interns do contribute a lot of unpaid labour to massive countries, uh, sorry, companies. There's a, there's a massive issue with people not being paid for what they should be being paid for. But in this case, I don't think that it was solely her idea. I think. Um, I think they would have reverted to the story format anyway. I mean, Twitter have now got stories, Facebook have got stories, Instagram stole it off Snapchat. Every other single social media has got stories. I think it was just a natural progression 
Spotify was going to as well. There's no way that she was the only person that worked for Spotify that had the idea. Um, she, she definitely, you know, was one of them. They may have taken aspects of her idea, but as you said, Spotify own all of that. And I'm not doubting in any way to perform that another uh, employee of Spotify would have also had the idea. Um, I, I, I get where she's coming from. I get that, you know, she, she left the company and all of a sudden they have taken her idea, it looks like. But I don't think it's like that much of a revolutionary idea that it is basically just hers. Um, yeah, sorry to, you know, introduce some debate here, but I just think that she she got quite a lot of in, uh, attention on the internet for it, but I just think it was going to happen anyway. Literally everyone else has got stories. It's a really simple and great format. So it just makes sense that Spotify would have would have reversed that to that anyway. Yeah, so are you suggesting that possibly this could be a crude form of uh, self-promotion amongst Twitter? Uh, I don't know if she did it on purpose, but she's, <laughs> she definitely got a lot of uh, likes and retweets out of it. Yeah, she must have got followers and yeah. um, possibly future employers might have caught wind of that. And, you know, she's the, the inventor of it. So <laughs> perhaps I should or could get her a future job. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, isn't it? And I think, like you say, Sophie, it is. it was... I would say a natural progression that they would have gone to anyway but I think that is uh, a lot of the story with this intellectual property it's who's got there first and whether that makes her in the right to take it on um and yeah like Peter said I think another really interesting side of this is the debate around internships and whether that is taking advantage of young people so as like students yourselves um what do you think about like these kind of companies and do you think they should be doing more for young people and creating that recognition to create more of a um welcoming environment for young people into their like starting their careers yeah that that was kind of the um the point i was trying to make and i, I completely understand seraphina's point and i don't know enough about this actual spotify controversy to say that like she had enough um in this situation to kind of warrant um like financial reimbursement or whatever but, but yeah my point was more so to answering your question fiona was the fact that i think that at the moment as internships operate and the thing is this varies from company to company this isn't just like a catch-all rule but as kind of like the traditional mode of internships operates they are you know, as in young people being they are often taken advantage of in the sense that they're either paid less uh, to work quite menial jobs or just longer jobs and that there's not really kind of that there's, there's not that kind of feeling of wanting to bring young people in to grow them as like the primary target. And also another problem is the fact that with a lot of internships and also just getting into jobs at kind of like this initial starting level, um, they look for other experience. And it's hard for students to have that when they've spent X amount of years studying and then also balancing a job. It feels like the expectations don't match the actual realities. So I do think that the, the culture of kind of youth employment and going into these um, going into business and obviously like I said th this isn't a catch-all kind of statement because it does vary from business to business and some business models have very inclusive internships so it does vary but the general culture around it I think could do with a bit of reformation. Definitely I think there's a, an element of classism that's inherent in it as well because if you're offering an unpaid internship there's only people that can afford to kind of pay the living costs without that who are going to be able to pay on that internship and so it means that opportunities are very limited to the people that can afford it and there's no way to break into that if you, if you can't afford to work without being paid 
Um, I know in journalism, it's a huge uh, debate. You know, there's a whole thing going on about like writing for free and whether you should do it um, as a young person, because uh, I think traditionally these internships are supposed to kind of give experience um, and that's all you really get out of it, but it's supposed to be enough. Um, but in this day and age, I think with like living costs rising and the fact that, you know, um, academia is getting a lot more like stressful and expensive. And I just don't think it's really feasible to expect young people to do you know in some internships the same uh, caliber of work as actual paid employees um just in the name of getting the name out there or just experience um it's just not really enough uh, just going to a completely different point um i think for me this whole spotify because a question for me personally whether i'd want to use spotify because i know last year there was also a bit of controversy about how much small music producers actually get from the subscriptions whether it's um, proportional in any sense of the uh, word um, and for me I, I don't know I don't know whether I still want to be subscribing five pound a month it's not a lot but is it really ethical if they're mugging off their own employees and mugging off the people that use their platform someone uh, made a parody of this on Instagram and showed did like a Spotify rap but showing how much money the artists are actually paid and, and I think it open my eyes a lot to how I'm thinking oh I'm this person's top listener and they're a really small band so I'm actually doing something amazing but I'm not because I am just giving my money to Spotify and giving the tiniest percentage to this to one of my favorite bands who's tiny and I'd love to support them but I don't have a CD player that I use regularly I don't have I don't want to buy a CD I don't have any use for it really so I would much rather just stream it I don't really use iTunes, so I think Spotify is where I go for all my music. And I think that is quite scary because that is becoming the norm for everybody. So I think it's the streaming services that need to have a look at how they're treating musicians because with live concerts being cancelled this year, people not having maybe more disposable income to spend on albums, vinyls, cassettes, actual albums on iTunes or something, people have reverted to the cheapest option, which is Spotify. And that has probably had a detrimental effect on smaller artists. Yeah, so I've got it here. Um, it was reported in 2018 that Spotify were paying music rights holders between 0.06 and $0.0084 per stream, which obviously is shocking. And like you say, with coronavirus, um, artists can't tour and make money like that. So they are, um, artists are struggling and the whole music industry in general. Uh, this story has obviously got a few parallels with another story that's came out this week um, with between the writers and influencers um, Florence Given and Chidera Egaru, also known as The Sunflower. Um, so The Sunflower went live on Instagram to flag up some similarities between her books, What a Time to Be Alive, How to Get Over a Boy and Florence Given's debut novel, Woman Don't Owe You Pretty. Um, the Sunflower has cited uh, this, these similarities as an example of white supremacy at work um, and showed how black people's activism is co-opted by white people. The Sunflower also complained, uh, claims that What a Time to Be Alone kicked off the trend of hardback non-fiction self-help books, having a visually exciting approach with illustration by the author, large text and fun approachable way of reading. Um, so this is another person this week, obviously, that's trying to, uh, trying to claim this, um, intellectual property uh, it's definitely worth saying that the two writers have the same agent and management 
Um, so do you guys think this is a valid point that this is white supremacy at work? Um, and this is a white person taking the intellectual property of uh, a black person? Or do we think, again, this is probably uh, these multinational corporations, high earning publishers and management taking advantage of these two girls? Um, I've um, had quite a lot of conversations about this and like, I, yeah, just the whole like feminism aspect of it. Um, so I believe Florence Given's book was handed like finished manuscript uh, in November 2019. And then Chidero Egaru's book came out in March, April this year. So I think there's not really any way she could have directly copied because she literally handed in her manuscript first. Um, and also, I think that kind of trend of that kind of graphic design um, is just trending at the moment. Similarly to what I said about um, Spotify, I think it just it's what's popular, what's, you know, that aesthetic is going on at the moment. I think I even read an article about the fact that like that colour yellow and pink and orange that she used are like the Gen Z colours. So it, it, it fits in with like the general zeitgeist, I think. Um, but I know me and Jess have had this conversation before in that. Um, there is an, a racialized element going on here in that Florence Given is a thin, white, traditionally pretty cisgender woman. Um, and Chidira Egaru is a black woman. Um, and unfortunately, in this day and age, people are still more likely to listen to a white thin, cisgender pretty woman. Um, and even if they're saying the same thing, and I think Florence Given even said at the end of her book, you know, she attributes all of her ideas to quite a few kind of black feminist theorists. Um, but unfortunately, she is packaged that people are more likely to consume feminism from and these, these radical ideas. Um, you know, she is that more totally acceptable, digestible package from which feminism is kind of spouted, um, which is a shame because it doesn't mean that uh, the Sloanflower's words are any less valid. It just means that as a society, we don't see her take her as seriously as, as we should. Um, and... I 100% I, I see the issue, but I just don't think that Florence Given is as at fault here as she's been made out to be. Um, as much as I kind of, aren't, I'm not the biggest fan of the book or anything like that. So, yeah. I think I've seen people take Florence Given's book as a literal Bible to like looking at feminism and introducing themselves to feminism. And I think that's because it is this easy approach. It's brightly coloured. It looks pretty on a coffee table or your bookshelf. You know, it's aesthetically pleasing. Her, she has this very 70s look. People copy her image, her aesthetic. And even I think it comes to the name. What's easier to type into Google? Florence Given or Shadera Eguri. So there's that difference of how do you find this book? How do you access these books? And even when I think uh, the Slumflower account, she showed that when she Googled her book, Florence Given came up as well. So it was like her book, Florence Given, then her audio book. Um, so she never even just had the whole search page to herself. And even on Amazon reviews, people have actually used, Amazon has put in Florence Given's book picture next to her reviews of her book. So there's all these different crossovers between these two books which are basically trying to say the same ideas of being a woman having you know loving yourself before loving someone else those kind of concepts um and yeah I my friends that have read this book kind of constantly refer to it as this this book that's helped them get over this particular relationship to help them discover this about themselves be more confident and I think that's amazing but I think the main thing to take from this is we should all be diversifying our bookshelves we shouldn't just be relying on this one book written by this one woman because it's pretty or because it's helped you with this. 
read another book, read the Slumflower book and get a different perspective. Read something written ages and years and years ago, get this perspective. And then you have this rounded view. I think that might be a more interesting way to actually learn about feminism rather than just going from this woman who is only our age. Like she's not lived a, a longer life than us, than her target audience. She is only about 21. She's taken these ideas from these different theorists. So I think it's really important not to just rely on her novel as this feminist Bible, as it's been kind of sounded on, in, on the internet and look at other books. I've got a question because I haven't read the book, so I can't make comment, nor do I know too much about the controversy, but I've got a question which kind of what you've just been speaking about, Jess, has led me to think of is the fact that it's being referred to in social media and among circles right now because it's trending as some form of feminist Bible. But based on what I've just done in terms of quick research into Florence Gibbon and in terms of the book, like it doesn't look like an academically rigorous piece of work. So my question is, does this dilute feminist rhetoric in the sense of what feminist scholars and what feminist social activists for decades and decades have been theorizing, the extensive amount of research that they've been writing, does this kind of pseudo intellectualism that I could call Florence Gibbons work, does it dilute from proper feminist rhetoric? Definitely, yeah because she's written all this feminist theory and wrapped it up in a pretty novel, wrapped it up with leopard print and pink sparkles yeah. and bits. For, for, me, for, for me, this is just ridiculous. I think there's some absolutely amazing books out there where you can learn about feminism. Angela Davies, for example, has some amazing theory. People who have done philosophy on women's rights, equal rights, there's, there's so much content out there. But this, say for Christmas, I know it's been... It's been um, redone with gold edged pages as the perfect Christmas gift to buy your daughter or your sister or your auntie and it is just pretty fine that's not a word but aesthetically pleasing feminism for your coffee table and if you take this as fact I think it's actually quite damaging. Yeah I'm, I'm, this, 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 this annoys me slightly like I think while it's important to, for awareness to be raised and I know that different modes of information need to be disseminated to different audiences and like obviously not all people can kind of like open a work by someone as acclaimed as Angela Davies and try and uh, dissect it but at the same time like I feel like we live in this era where kind of people use Twitter as um, kind of a source of a lot of information as a, and as a source of fact when it really isn't. And this to me seems like I could look like if I was to label it like pseudo intellectual, like Twitter feminism that Florence Given is spreading. And I think like while it's important that some of the points she may make may help people, at the same time, it may diminish people from who can challenge themselves intellectually and still using Angela Davis as the example to reach out to works which are more kind of steeped in theory and which are more kind of well, way more profound than this book, but which to me and how you've described it just sounds like it's a bit of a commercial ploy that's been wrapped in. Like, how can you talk about liberation and concepts of feminism, but you're like, oh, but look, it's wrapped in pretty like leopard print. Like, it's just, it doesn't compute. I 100% get where you're coming from, but I think you have to remember the fact that we are very privileged to know stuff about feminism. Some people are picking this book up and they have never heard of the concept. I think something she says in there is like, um, don't settle for crumbs, you're the whole cake. Cheesy, horrible, don't like it. But the sentiment is that, you know, if, if a woman has never really encountered feminism before, she is not going to know 
um, a lot of the stuff that's in that book. And for me, reading it as somebody that kind of spent a lot of time on <laughs> like Tumblr and Twitter, and uh, I've read feminist theory, and like I'm very much into it. I, you know, it's I've spent a lot of time kind of immersed in this feminist fear. Um, but if you don't, if you've never come across that, I think it is an accessible way into it and an accessible way into um, kind of having some more agency and having more self-confidence and kind of recognizing that you don't have to, um, I'm going to say the word prostitute yourself, but that doesn't kind of seem right in this situation, but kind of pander to patriarchal standards and stuff. And if you've never had anybody telling you that, um, then this book, which uses fairly simple language and is pretty and is written by somebody who is accessible and has, you know, is young and is like you, that's going to help you. And I think it's, it's, I don't want, like, I think it's important that we don't gatekeep feminism and theory because some people don't want to or can't or don't know how to read theory. It's so dense and so difficult to read and like, you know I struggle with it and I do humanities and I'm into feminism like sometimes I'll read a, a work by a feminist or person and I'm like what the hell are they talking about so if you've never come across feminism and you're walking right into that it's going to be even more impenetrable for you and so I think that it's in although there's so many issues surrounding it I do think it's still important that we have accessible feminist works yeah I'd agree with that I think it is targeted at sort of a potentially a younger audience people that are new to the concept um, I mean, she's only 21. She's an influencer on Instagram. It is targeted at younger uh, younger people. Um, but from the conversation I have had, I understand where you're coming from, Peter. Um, I think f- speaking to my friends about it, this idea, which they would call like pop feminism, is um, I think is the issue with this whole debate of plagiarism of there's not a huge amount of like original or particularly radical ideas to be plagiarised. Yeah, I mean, just going off that point, is anybody else really fed up by like uh, pop fe- feminism as a whole on Twitter and Instagram? I just, for me personally, this might sound a bit controversial, but I just get really tired of just seeing the same reposts all the time. It's, it feels like everyone's just forgot how to form their own original opinions. And perhaps it's just because people are coming across the ideas for the first time. But I do feel that it shouldn't be so easy just to repost what you've just seen. I, I don't know how everybody else thinks on that, but yeah. I think what, what, what in terms of what you're saying, I think that I agree messages can be diluted when people reduce activism just to Instagram posts with kind of like flashy colors and like images, which might not even be about the actual topic. And I do feel like, and this is what the Florence Given case I was trying to relate to is, I think we live in an era because we have so much access through social media, through Instagram and Twitter. It's very easy for people to reshare something on Instagram as a post, like to try and raise social activism, but then they actually know very little about the case or have researched into it. And there can be various ways as, as to why they're doing it. They're doing it in terms of like social pressures because they feel like, they might look woke or they might look cool if they repost it, but in reality, there's no substance behind it. And personally, I have a deep problem with that because I think Twitter and Instagram, while we can use it as a platform for social activism for the good, it can be very easily co-opted and taken over by this idea of pop feminism, which dilutes the message and it actually diminishes representation and discussion of an issue. But this is a whole other debate as well. 
But isn't it better for people to have at least a superficial understanding of something that's going to help them or help other people? Like, because if if you share a post, for example, if you see somebody sees a post about something they've never heard of say, on, your, on your story, they get interested in it, they go and research it. All of a sudden, you know, they're empowered or they're, going, they're you know, donating to a charity that's helping somebody that on the issue that you're you're posting about. I, I just I just I I think it's important that you you don't gatekeep stuff and expect people to be experts and uh like really knowledgeable about things because it's just you can't be like people don't have the time people don't you know I think it's almost from a position of privilege um that you can like say what you know if you're going to share something superficially or you know you're just pressing a button for some people that is the first time they've ever heard of stuff I know with the whole Black Lives Matter movement earlier on in the year some of my friends um hadn't ever ever engaged with kind of uh, racism and like discussions around race and because of this movement on social media because of you know people sharing posts on their social media they got into it and they looked at it and they realized that they needed to change some of their behaviors they started sharing stuff and you know getting into getting into like the deep ideas of it and it, it flicks a switch in their brain and that's what starts social change I think if if, if everybody as a, uh, a base knowledge of things like feminism, things like anti-racism, things like not being homophobic, that contributes to a wider change in the cost of society. And I think it's just a little bit presumptuous to expect everybody to uh, have a really deep understanding of stuff because it, it's just unrealistic. Um, yeah, sorry to be controversial again. Like, I don't know, it, are there, has it got to the point now where there's almost too many different posts to, for someone to read and even just superficially look at all these Instagram stories and make themselves more knowledgeable on all the different controversies going on in the world. Because for me, I think about all the movies I've got to watch, all the books I've got to read, all the music I've got to listen to. And to be honest, Instagram and social media is at the bottom of it. I, I read the news first before I look at these Instagram stories, which often have different sorts of news. I think it's important to remember though that social media is free. Like you can access this from anywhere and these books cost money, these films cost money, these news platforms often cost money. Whereas people posting free content on Instagram and different social media platforms is completely free. And if it's helping people to educate them, get into that first level, maybe second level, looking at different opinions, because you can follow these authors on Instagram and gain what they're saying even if it's not through an academic sense as we were saying before maybe it doesn't have to be because at least you're engaging with it learning something um starting your so-called feminist journey into kind of learning about these different theories from a base point of a platform that anyone can access it's quite you know there's a lot of equality in that sense um so talking about feminist movements um this is a different kind of uh, story, but it involves Jessie Nelson's exit from Little Mix, who are one of the biggest girl bands at the moment. So she left due to mental health reasons caused from the pressures of, be pressures of being in a girl band. She had previously been on an extended break from the group, but yesterday and now she was leaving for good, sharing the news with her fans on social media. So she said, the truth is being in the band has really taken a toll on my mental health. I find the constant pressure of being in a girl group and living up to expectations very hard. This was to her 7.4 million followers on Instagram. And Jessie has already spoken openly about her struggles with anxiety. Um, and she tried to take her own life after online trolls just became too much for her to handle. And this is a lot around her body image, like the way she is being different to her fellow band members. 
And in this post, she says she needed to she needs to spend some time with people she loves, doing the things that make me happy. I'm ready to embark on a new chapter in my life. I'm not sure what it's going to look like right now, but I hope you'll still be there to support me. So in this BBC documentary called Odd One Out, Jessie stated that she has suffered from depression and disordered eating and has been frequently targeted on online abuse, all linked to being in Little Mix and gaining this celebrity, you know, being being famous, really. And she said when Little Mix were crowned, the first Facebook message she saw was from a stranger. It read, you are the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. You do not deserve to be in this girl band. You deserve to die. So this online trolling kind of started, it catalysted from this win from X Factor, from being the different one in Little Mix due to her weight and the way she portrayed herself. And this is why she's being targeted. And she is the only member of Little Mix who even remotely is close to the average UK female size of size 16. And although the four bands were been friends, she always felt singled out. And she was with three girls who she always was comparing herself to be. And regarding this issue of social media, which has blown up and can cause awfulness with cyberbullying, online hate, online trolls. She said that she started to have a routine of waking up, going on Twitter, searching for the worst things I could about myself. I type in the search bar, Jesse fat or Jesse ugly and see what would come up. Sometimes I didn't even to do that. I just write Jesse and then all I'd see were the horrible things. Everyone told me to ignore it, but it was like an addiction. So this got as bad as for Jesse Nelson to start skipping events involved in Little Mix's pr promos. So these are things like um, photo shoots, and things so in one magazine shoot the wrong size clothes were provided for her and they didn't fit and she had a meltdown and she cried so much she had to wear sunglasses she did one photo and then she left so this is quite a horrific tale of us of somebody who if you didn't read about you wouldn't really know all this trauma behind it because in concerts in music videos in the music of little mix it's all very upbeat it's all very happy alive exciting and yeah, this is quite an interesting issue in terms of mental health becoming a lot more spoken about and not, and more, not as much as a taboo as it used to be. And fans have commented saying that choosing her health, well-being and sanity over being in the band is, a, a, is admirable, but incredibly sad. Um, so what I was thinking about with the impact on student mental health in halls, especially in coronavirus, on mental health as a wider subject for people who've been isolated, is Jesse Nelson's speech about how this has affected her gonna, you know, start more of a conversation amongst young girls who have obviously maybe faced the same pressures. And my other kind of question was whether this could discourage young women who want to have a career in the music industry, who are possibly mid-sized, don't are not this kind of beauty standard slim size, they are, you know, themselves. Jessie Nelson had a lot of tattoos, which is very, you know, just very herself as well but could this discourage people who are like Jesse from wanting to enter a career in the music industry um due to this, the fears of being trolled being cyberbullied leading to possibly wanting to take your own life in this serious case of Jesse Nelson I think it's extremely sad that this has happened and yeah what do you guys think I mean first I think it's great that she's come out and said this I think a lot of people will take comfort and courage from the fact that she has come out and said that and it's great for people to see um great for people that are also suffering suffering with mental health to see people in the public eye people that they admire are also struggling um with I think also yeah it's a great tie to the student mental health 
like a crisis at the moment with coronavirus, people staying in with halls. So I think it is a it is a big issue, bigger than it has been for a while amongst young people at the moment. Um, with young girls going into the music industry, I think it's been known that it's been awful for young girls and probably only much more since social media and cancel culture and trolling. I think there's so much more that um, these artists, like agents and the people surrounding them can do and need to do to protect them in this way. Um, and just the social media platforms in general should be taken, um, should have like take on that responsibility to protect the people who have the biggest following, who have the most followers um, and do attract people to those sites as well. I think they need to take responsibility and take care of their users. This disappoints me that people think that they have the right to kind of comment on her uh, appearance that much that it you know literally affected her that much I think it just I don't really understand the the thought process of someone going on Twitter and being like oh this person's ugly this person's fat like I don't really get what that adds to the world um, and I do think it's a massive shame because Jessie Nelson isn't that big she's bigger than the rest of Little Mix but she's not anything unusual I think she's gorgeous um you know she's this is um me and Jess talk about this quite a lot um but she I think people are focusing on her private life and her own private matters uh, a lot more than they are on her her job her the reason she's in the public eye you know the fact that she is a talented singer she's a performer um the the reason that she is in the public eye is, is to, to sing not to be judged on her performance you know she's not a model she's not her, her appearance isn't her like what she's selling um and so I think it's just really odd that people think that they have such a right to say so much stuff about something that's not like the main focal po point of of Jesse Nelson. Yeah I completely agree with those points that have been made and I think with people that kind of log in onto Twitter and kind of just hold this this hate uh, and like write these messages it's definitely rooted partly either in elements of insecurity within oneself and then they're trying to project it on public figures to like try and make themselves feel better in some way or it may maybe people that just generally like get a thrill out of thinking that they gain some significance or relevance in their life by impacting another person's in like in a negative way and it is it is quite an upsetting thing and it's a shame that it's kind of led to the point where um obviously she's felt like she has to stop stop um, this kind of public element of her career and leave Little Mix um, and, and, and yeah it is a massive shame it's something that needs to be addressed and I definitely think that kind of addressing it from the social media aspect of asking social media companies to address these issues more and we've seen this a lot in um, also debates that have been had in American politics more so around this fake news element rather than trolling but it is kind of a recurring theme at the moment about kind of the power of social media and curbing what we can say quote unquote is free speech and whether all speech should be publicized or not is also opens to another massive debate which obviously we're not talking about right now um but yeah these are all kind of important things i have personally been empowered by jesse nelson and how she like comes across on stage um, you know, Little makes are notorious for wearing quite revealing outfits, like leotards and things on stage, and she's never not worn the 
same. And it reminded me of something that happened in Pitch Perfect where Rebel Wilson had to wear a different costume because she was of a larger size. So everyone else was wearing quite strappy tops who were slimmer, but Rebel Wilson had to wear a different shaped top. And it caused this widespread kind of sparked online debate as it normally does as to why this was the case. And I think it brings up this whole issue surrounding body positivity. You know, we've had Lizzo say it's becoming over-commercialized where people who don't like don't like aren't of that kind of don't need it don't rely on this movement to feel empowered and confident each day are taking advantage of it and I hope that Jessie Nelson's career carries on and she becomes kind of this person where she can normalize this and possibly help others who had felt the same through her experiences which shouldn't have ever happened but I hope she can inspire people who are like her to not give up on their dreams. I just find the whole situation quite sad I mean Little Mix being my favourite uh, British girl band in 2019, uh, according to Spotify. Uh, <laughs> I am joking, but uh, nah, it's it's sad to see someone get bullied out of their job. Uh, no one likes to see it. Um, and to be honest, it just highlights what we've been talking about on the problems with social media and the problems with living in an internet age and being famous. I mean, I don't know who said it, um, but there was, you said that you don't really rely on your image when you're a pop star. And I complete, I don't completely disagree, but I, I disagree because you're portraying yourself to the whole world and what the whole world sees is yourself on photos, on videos. And so if you don't fit this perfect, you know, this ideal of a pop star, then often they get a really hard, rough time and Surely that shouldn't be way in, you know, in 2020. I don't know. It seems a bit cliche, but yeah. Yeah, it's a shame that um, she seems to have almost been chased out of it by by the bullying. It's like, because she is mid-sized, she doesn't have a place in the industry kind of thing, um, which is a real shame. But as Jess said, you know, if her, if her uh, career continues, and I think it is almost inspirational that she's kind of stood up to this, um, this massive amount of hate and kind of, kept being herself and she hasn't necessarily changed much and despite all the pressure which is kind of inspiring. I think to kind of move on from what is quite an emotional story um, I think anyone who resonates with Jesse Nelson's story should really seek uh, help if they need it there's loads of online resources on well-being and mental health you should try and access um, but Another story that has come out recently and coronavirus and how people have been suffering again with mental health being told to stay away from friends and family. Um, it got a bit too much for Dale McLowan, who is 28, and he has just been jailed for breaching coronavirus rules after he took a four and a half hour trip on a jet ski to visit his girlfriend in the Isle of Man. So Isle of Man has practically returned to normal despite the pandemic getting worse for us in England. They had extremely strict rules from the beginning and they have got their rates of infection down there are only four people with the with the virus confirmed at the moment um so yeah they had really really tight border restrictions on people entering the isle of man and dale knew this and wanted to see his girlfriend therefore thought he would avoid security checks by going by jet ski from scotland to the isle of man um he thought this would only take him 40 minutes um but it didn't it took him four and a half hours on a jet ski he had never ridden one before and just bought one outright for 
for fun, I guess. <laughs> but he was really suffering not seeing his girlfriend. And he got to Ramsey, which I think is in the north of the Alamann, and then had to walk for 15 miles to reach his girlfriend's home in Douglas. So this was just a, an, a massive trip. He was on a jet ski, he was hiking, and finally saw his girlfriend. The problems arise really because he went to nightclubs with her in the Alabama, which have now opened again. Um, he wasn't social distancing from members of the public and he has been caught by the security enforcement teams on the Alabama and being jailed for four weeks for breaches of coronavirus restrictions. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's either this grand romantic gesture of love to his girlfriend, you know, getting a jet ski, you can just imagine holding roses whilst he travels across the ocean on, on his jet ski. But also, was it just an extremely dangerous, you know, he could have drowned, he could have like put strain on search and rescue teams, um, hospitals. He's also could have spread the virus potentially um, throughout the Elderman and um, increase their case numbers. So yeah, what do we think? Grand romantic gesture or reckless mistake? I think it's a really extreme version of the uh, come over, I'm home alone meme where, where he literally went through the extent of buying a jet ski to get to the Isle of Man, <laughs> which like, or, or, it's either that or like some kind of neo-Shakespearean drama, which is also, yeah, it's, it's ended It's ended like with him in prison for four weeks. So it is, it is kind of serious, but there is definitely a lot of, elements of humor in this story so I'm, I'm kind of torn between the two in answering that question I just the price you have to pay for a shag all weeks in prison <laughs> love can't be conquered that's all i'll say thank you for tuning in and once again a special shout out to johnny hunt for producing the show that's it for now you're in focus